Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, and drummer from New York, New York, Josh Feldstein. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Josh Feldstein with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lee. It's nice to be with you. Okay, could you please introduce yourself and then we'll get right into it? Uh, I am a uh, jazz drummer and uh, leader of the Verve Jazz Ensemble. I have been playing jazz drums for a long time, uh, more than 30 years. Uh, I started playing when I was uh, 11 years old. Uh, I grew up in uh, New York City and uh, began studying uh, locally uh, with a community teacher, got involved with my uh, school's uh, music program, played in the uh, junior high school and then high school bands. And uh, the thing that was most uh, interesting uh, for me, Lee, is that growing up in New York City, I had access to the greatest uh, jazz performances and, and the artists uh, in the world that were moving through the city on a regular basis. And uh, that was sort of my uh, my laboratory. That was my 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 uh, my place of learning. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the thing that really got me going uh, is a. Uh, uh, one little anecdote. We'll, we'll, we'll kick off our our, uh, our interview today with this one. I was uh, studying. I think I was about eleven at the time, eleven and a half. And uh, one day, my uh, drum instructor came to me and he said, "Josh, your playing style reminds me of a guy named Gene Krupa." And I said, "Gene Krupa, you think?" I sound like Gene Krupa. That's unbelievable. Who's Gene Krupa? And he looked at me and he said, you don't know who Gene Krupa is. That's unbelievable. All right, I will bring some records to the next lesson. And of course, Gene Krupa was the great drummer with the Benny Goodman big band. Anyway, Lee, I listened to the, to the playing of Gene Krupa and I was blown away. I didn't sound like Gene Krupa, believe me, but I, I thought that what I heard was the most unbelievable drumming, and I thought, I, I, I want to play this instrument. I mean, because if that's what the drums can do, then I'm all in, and that was the beginning of my journey into jazz. Okay. Now, are you a Gene Krupa or a Buddy Rich guy? I would say that I'm probably more a, a Buddy rich guy okay, than, like a, than a Gene Krupa guy. Anyone that listens to this but, knows I love the guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, but but here's but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some of Gene's playing, if you listen to him when he was really at his peak, um, that guy could swing. He was unbelievable. And he introduced the whole music world to the the drum solo. I mean, he was he was the man. He was this handsome, uh, high-energy uh, performer, and he took drum soloing to the level of the spotlight 
and you know all eyes on the drummer and and he turned it into a spectacle uh an artistic spectacle and from there the art form of the drum solo really evolved uh you know much much more uh dramatically uh because of his popularity at the time you know you could argue probably that chick webb uh did something similar, but he didn't have the the, the visibility that that Krupa did with the with the uh, Benny Goodman Orchestra. And it was a little bit later that I began to focus on what Buddy could do because uh, you know who, which which drummer isn't blown away by Buddy's by Buddy's playing. But to be honest with you, Lee, I didn't understand what Buddy Rich was doing. I mean, Buddy's playing was a thousand miles over my head. It took me a long time to figure out what that guy was about. That's fair. Uh, just one question just for me. Did you go to a public school in the city? I did, actually. I, I went to a public school in Manhattan, and then my family moved from Manhattan to uh, uh, Queens in uh uh, when I was in uh, elementary school and I went to junior high school, uh, was, uh, PS 158, uh, in, uh, in Bayside, Queens. Uh, and then I went to Bayside high school and later I went to Queens college. So I'm a, I'm a New York city guy. Yeah. It's just, that's one of the things I, one of the reasons I believe there's less jazz musicians, a lot of schools cut their music programs in the, in the cities. So that's why I asked that. Okay. But and I know Bayside High really well. That's another thing. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, I get to interview you? Yeah, how? How do you know Bayside? No, I live in New York. So I go over there. I've been in that area. I have a lot of friends that nice. went there. A lot of them don't really go to Bayside High that grew up in Bayside now. They go to Brooklyn Tech or they go to Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, but yeah. Oh, you go. You, you, you hang out with the guys with brains. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't smart enough for that, that scene. We, I was hanging out with musicians. You call it when I go in there right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so your eighth studio album, All In. It's good. I love it. I'm surprised Alexa's still with you guys. How did you guys keep her? Okay. Well, we have been playing with Alexa Tarantino since our, uh, uh, I think it was our sixth album. Um Fifth album, excuse me, fifth album was Connect the Dots, and that was the first album that uh, Alexa joined uh, the band. So the background on that is that we started out back in the day uh, in in Connecticut. We uh, were a uh, quartet and then later a quintet with a front line of a tenor saxophonist and John Blank and uh, uh, other horn players. When we recorded our first album, in uh, 2012, um, Tatum Greenblatt joined our group, and uh, Tatum uh, played trumpet with John on tenor, and we were a quintet. Uh, and the quintet uh, structure was uh, where we stayed uh, until our fifth album, at which point I decided that I'd like to expand and uh, see where we could go with the group's sound. And Tatum said, I have to introduce you to my my great musical colleague and friend, Alexa Tarantino. And so it was Tatum who introduced uh, me to uh, Alexa. She joined us for our uh, 2018 album, Connect the Dots. And uh, although we had, I think, 
three or four top 10 albums uh, in our first uh, uh, grouping of, of albums. This album went to number one on the Jazz Week radio charts. And so we had ourselves a number one album. We said, this is a formula that's clearly working. You know, she joined the group and Willie Applewhite joined the group also on uh, trombone, uh, also brought in by, by Tatum. And uh, so that was the beginning of our relationship with, with Alexa. And uh, uh, on our current album, All In, uh, she performed, and that's the third album that we've done together. Yes. She came on the show before. She's a sweetheart. Everyone, you do need to check out her stuff. Uh, so You do. Tell me about this project. What separates this one versus even, we could go with the number one album or we could go with the last two. Which one of the ones? All In is a, uh, a project that focuses on mid-century uh, Americana. That's mid-20th century Americana. And we just picked this as a theme because we, we liked it. Uh, you know, the, the band's foundation uh, is really in the hard bop uh, genre. That is really where we, we uh, sort of get our, our vibe from. Uh, I, I was very, very influenced uh, as a drummer, not just with, uh, you know, big band stuff of Krupp and Rich and all that, but I got very heavily into smaller group, uh, hard bop uh, music. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, um, of course, Art Blakey, Philly Joe Jones, uh, Max Roach, Clifford Brown, um, uh, all of the, the, uh, the music uh, of that era, uh, really, really spoke to me. And so the whole structure of, 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 uh, hard bop quintet kind of stuff was always, uh, uh, of, of, of interest. Tatum loves that. The band loves that. So everybody in the group really gravitates around this type of, of music. You know, we play all kinds of stuff, but we really dig this kind of time frame in, in the jazz idiom. And uh, uh, Tatum said to me, how about we think about doing something that would be kind of mid-century Americana? And I said, I, I love it. And we put together a, a, a series of, of, uh, of uh, tunes that we thought would uh, be very interesting. We can talk about those. We've, we've got some, some time to get into this. And uh, Tatum wrote a couple of originals too, uh, one of them became the title tune of the album, All In. And uh, opening that track, was sort yes. of a, 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 a swinger, uh, but, you know, came out of a little bit of a jitterbug uh, um, feel, but very big band. And, you know, it had a few other twists and turns going on. But we picked tunes that were out of the middle of, of, the, of the 20th century, like, for example, uh, the Odd Couple theme. Yes, and we had some fun with that. And and you know, I I, I said to uh, Willie, our uh, trombonist, who's also a wonderful arranger, I said, "Hey Willie, uh, w what do you think if we do something?" He's like, "Man, I, I got an idea for this. Well, let's do this like as a as a as a six eight Afro Cuban thing." Yeah, that was my favorite track on the album, so I give them that. Really? Yeah, that's great. It's like, how could you do like the odd couple as an Afro-Cuban thing? He's like, well, I, I got an idea, man. Let's let's see. And so we did it, and and uh, we had fun with it. We you know we meant it to be fun. 
And so we picked a number of other tunes. Uh, for example, Studio J, which was written by Toshiko Akiyoshi. Uh, I think that was released in an album in the late 70s. Uh, that she wrote, and there was a piece by George Shearing um, that uh, was called Midnight in the Air. I think he wrote in like 1959, 1960. Beautiful, beautiful uh, tune. Uh, very, very uh, uh, almost dark in its in its tones, but but Alexa really shines on that. It's a beautiful piece. Um, and uh, then we played not only the uh, the Odd Couple theme, which was written by Neil Hefty, who wrote, you know, tons and tons of music for the Count Basie Orchestra, but also um, uh, Pensive Miss, which is a, a, a beautiful, beautiful ballad that he wrote for Basie. So we have two uh, tunes that were written by Neil Hefty and more beyond that. But, you know, so what we did was we, we grabbed a, a variety of different contrasting uh, uh, tunes with very different contexts, but all more or less in the same 20, 25 year horizon. And that became the, uh, the center point of the all in album. Okay. So what makes you keep it as a seven piece band? Well, we've played a lot at, historically as a quintet. Uh, we've recorded, uh, as a trio, we have one trio album that I did with uh, Elias Bailey on bass and Steve Einerson on piano. That was uh, our Swing a Nova album. So we've recorded as a trio. We've recorded as a quintet a number of times. In the context of all of our albums, uh, Lee, we've also recorded quintet pieces. We went up to seven because we wanted to fatten up the uh, the front, uh, the horn line. So now we have uh, trumpet in Tatum Greenblatt, tenor sax in John Blank, uh, alto sax and flute in uh, Alexa Tarantino, and trombone uh, with Willie Applewhite. And that gave us a sound that allows us to almost imitate a little bit uh, of a big band sound, but we could also pare down the, uh, the ensemble, and we do, to play the six pieces, five pieces, four pieces, three pieces, you know, and even on the current album, I think we have one trio piece. We have one quartet piece. So we changed the configuration from seven down to three. Uh, and that's just part of our, that's part of our shtick. That's part of what we do. Understood. I have an eight piece band. I keep it that size because I like the fullest sound, but yet I don't want to deal with big band problems. So that's why I asked. I agree with that. So indeed. Question also on this, I want to ask is like, so was it, how did you record it? Was it like, is this one sitting, one take straight on, straight on? Or was it like you did the line, like the back line, and then you did the front line after? How did you approach the recording process? We, we are typically uh, one take, two takes, three takes, and that's it as a band. You know, that, that, that's it. I mean, it's always great if you can hit it on the first or the second take. Uh, we don't have, we don't have too many excess and not, not anymore. I mean, we, I think in the earlier going of the, of the group, you know, we did have some tunes that we had to play a bunch of times, but after playing together for more than 10 years and recording eight albums, you know, we really understand, uh, each other's strengths. 
where everybody comes together, super focused. Everybody's very prepared. So typically it's a take or two or three at most. Uh, and, and that really is it. Okay. So when you actually in the studio, is there any arrangements redone or is it like you have it already set in theory, what you want and people seen the music before, right? Oh, all of our stuff is charted. Okay. Except, except for example, on this, on this album, uh, on all in, uh, we played dolphin dance and we did, uh, as a quartet with, uh, John blank on tenor. Uh, and that was with, um, our pianist, Matt Ostreicher, uh, and, uh, Elias Bailey on bass, myself on drums. And that was a tune where I think there was, uh, probably, uh, a, a very, a very basic, uh, chart that was prepared. Uh, and then we ran through the tune, I think one time in the studio, and then we recorded the tune, uh, and with Bluesette, which we played as a, a trio piece, um, Matt, our pianist, had an idea of where he was going with that. Uh, we sort of worked it out over the course of about literally 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And then we said, we're feeling it. Let's let's record it. And I think we did two takes and that was it. So Matt doesn't do any doubling over. He does it this guitar and just piano. He doesn't change or double up over the tracks. Cause I know he, he did. Both. We did a little bit. We did do a little bit of that. I think there was uh, a one or two tracks that uh, he did play both. Uh, and yes, he did. He would do an overdub of the uh, of guitar. And then there were some tracks that uh, Alexa came in and 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 she laid down a, a track uh, separately after the rest. The other six pieces recorded. But for the most part, it's it's the full band together, and you know, it's kind of like what you what you hear is what what we did. Okay. And because percussionist myself, now I've got to geek out and ask a few questions on this. What type of layout did you use in the studio? Was it like very times, a, a snare and a bass? So I play on a Catalina, a Gretsch Catalina kit, Lee. Uh, it's, I don't use a big drum set. You know, I, I'm a, a, a jazz guy. I keep it keep it simple, and and a, you know, schlepping around with lots of drum equipment is is not my idea of having a great time. So I don't mind having a, a smaller kit, but I did bring in a uh, a, a second floor tom uh, for this particular uh, recording because I think there were a couple of of tracks that I needed to have a little bit more bottom. Uh, all in, there was a uh, uh, a, a section. Uh, that was uh, all Tom's, Tom-Tom uh, Tom, uh, thing that we did. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I needed to have uh, a second floor. And I said, just, I kept the floor, uh, the second floor Tom uh, there. So it was snare, uh, rack Tom, two floor Toms. Uh, I think it was a 16-inch and, and an 18-inch. And uh, type uh, of symbols, drum, I got to ask yeah. too. So I, I have a 21-inch, a, a uh, studio ride. It's an AXX. That's my favorite. I've, I've, I love the sound of that. And as you know, as a drummer, uh, once you find a ride cymbal or crash cymbals or cymbals that you dig, you don't mess around with your cymbals. I mean, those are your cymbals. They're hard to find. It's really difficult to find cymbals that you really like. Um, you know, when you perform uh, and you have to use another drum set with a different set of cymbals, 
you really feel I know you feel naked. It's like you feel like you're sitting there without any clothes on, you know, behind it. Right. It's terrible. Yes. I, uh, but, I like the choices you made on that. That's why I was curious about that. And well, I know thanks. that's a little geeky. <laughs> well, but to answer the question, uh, I, I have a, a, a pasty uh, alternate ride that I use. I also have a, a sizzle, which I will use depending upon the tune. Uh, a couple of, of nice um, uh, of Zildjian, and then I have a um, uh, was the uh, the other uh, crash symbol. I have two, two crash symbols that I use. One is a, uh, a Zildjian, the other is I think is a pasty uh, um, pasty hi hats. And then I have an assortment of I have a pang symbol, and I have an assortment of sort of uh, novelty symbols, if you will that I'll pull out of the bag for particular tunes, depending upon whatever effect uh, I feel like I need to enhance the, uh, the symbol, uh, the symbol arsenal with. Okay. Other thing I wish to know is, were you actually touring or playing in the city before you put this band together? And what actually made you put this band together? Great question. So I started the uh, the group in uh, 06. We were playing in uh, Danbury, Connecticut, which is about an hour and a half north of New York City. Uh, I was living there. John Blank was living in that area at the time. And it, it, the group came together very accidentally, to be honest. I, I had uh, I wasn't playing. I hadn't been playing for, for a number of years uh, regularly, I was, you know, I play sporadically, but I wasn't really doing anything, uh, consistently. And I, uh, came across John, uh, he had just graduated from Westcon and, uh, he was playing with a couple of cats in a, in a place in Danbury, Connecticut. And, and this guy, I think John was like 22 at the time and his, uh, playing of, uh, uh straight ahead stuff, uh, standards and the like, I thought was fabulous for a, for a guy his age. I couldn't believe that he really had such a, 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 a close relationship to the to the sound, the authentic sound. He's got a very big, kind of a funky um, uh, Stanley Tarantino ish kind of a, a sound when he plays, and I was really impressed. And I said, "Man, you know, I, I really like your 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 style. I like what I'm hearing. Would you like to uh, to play uh, if I could get some some stuff together locally?" And he was like, "Yeah." So we ended up getting a number of local gigs. We did country clubs. We did a number of restaurants. I mean, it was that kind of stuff. And inside of about a year, Lee, we had quite a following. I mean, we would play and 40, 50 people would, would show up at these local venues to, to listen to the band. And everywhere we played, we, we, we got large groups of people. I mean, so it was a sound that people really dug. And this went on for about uh, six years. Uh, we did play some stuff in New York City uh, uh, here and there. And uh, then the economy started to crap out and uh, some of the venues started closing. And that was really a bummer. And so it's like, oh, what are we going to do? Well, <clears throat> for all these years, the end of every, every, every uh, gig we had, people would come up and they'd say, you have a CD? Can I buy a CD of you? But where can I find a CD of the band? People want to buy. And my answer albums. was nowhere. We don't have any. We don't have. It's like this is it. You know, this is our band. And I named the band the Verve Jazz Ensemble 
for a very simple reason, very humble reason. When I was a kid, this goes back to the beginning of our interview, I was listening to the Gene Krupa stuff. Those Krupa albums were on the Verve record label. Yeah. And I really, really, really loved the, the music that was on the Verve record label. So I just went, you know, scourging around for for anything I could find on the Verve record label. Um, so here we are, fast forward to, to 06, and I thought, you know what? This is the kind of music that we really love. We want to pay a little homage to the to the sound of that particular uh, uh, record label. Let's call ourselves the Verve Jazz Ensemble. I never had any idea that anything would come of this group. You know, this was a bunch of local guys just playing, you know, doing some pickup stuff, playing gigs at restaurants and, you know, country clubs. I didn't think of anything. So in, in, uh, in what was it, 12, in, in 2012, when these uh, venues started to close, I said, maybe we ought to just record an album just so that we have a, a, a record of our of our music, you know, and I, I can I can give my my kids a copy of one CD that their father, the jazz musician, uh, you know, made so that my kids had some appreciation of the fact that I, I played the drums and I was a jazz musician. And I swear to you, that was that was as far as, as I went in terms of my plans with, with recording. So we recorded the album really as a, as a, as a vanity project, if you will. Uh, we had no intent to do anything with it. And one thing led to another and the, the, uh, CD got into the hands of, uh, of a man named Neil Sapper, uh, out in, uh, California. I know Neil. <laughs> Everybody knows Neil. If you're in radio, you know who Neil is, right? So, uh, Neil gets the, uh, gets the, uh, album and we talk and he says, you know, I, I, I would like to promote this because I really like your music. And I said, okay. And the, uh, album was called it's about time. Uh, and it hit, I think was number five on the jazz week charts. And I thanked him profusely. It was an amazing experience. It was exciting. I couldn't believe it. A lot of fun was really it was it was uh, very exciting, and I thanked him, <clears throat> and I said, "Okay, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for this experience, and take it easy." And he looked at me and he said, "What do you mean? Take it easy. What are you doing for your next album?" And I said, "Neil, th th there's no next album." I said, "This was it. You know, we record our album. This was a great experience. Thank you very much. Goodbye." He said, no, 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 no. You have to do another album. You can't. How could you have a number five album on Jazz Week and then just walk away? And I said, what part of no don't you understand? He said, you have to do another album. Uh, I said, OK, OK. We'll do question, though. We'll question, though. OK. Love Neil. So I'm not taking a shot at Neil or anything. How much did you drop for that first album? In cost? Yeah. Oh, man. That's a good question. Uh, quite a bit. I mean, it was it was really for me. It was that's why I said it was a vanity. No, I understand project. that. North of twenty. Okay. No, because I tell people like expect to spend at the minimum ten, and that's another problem I think jazz has. It's like a gateway. So if you don't, if you graduate college, you're in debt. How are you going to come up with ten k? 
you got to have to pull your resources just to get an album to see a maybe. <laughs> but yeah, continue. I'm sorry. So you dropped twenty k. It's a, it's an it's an important. I was it was more than twenty. It was it was a, a number, you know. And but I I paid for this Lee over the course of like a year and a half and little, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, and so I was able to to you know to, uh, scrounge up the money, and so it didn't it didn't feel like I wrote a big check, you know. It was it was in in in, in bits and pieces. The uh, the long and the short of it is that we ended up doing a second album, and uh, we decided that we were going to invite a a guest artist uh, for our second album, which we did. And uh, the great uh, guitarist uh, Peter Bernstein uh, joined us for several tracks on our second album, which was uh, East End Sojourn. That was released in uh, 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was wonderful working with Pete. I think he recorded three tracks on that uh, album. And uh, we released that, and uh, Tatum did some writing, and John wrote did some writing, and we took some more chances, and we kind of expanded our repertoire, and we played a a, a very interesting Brazilian piece by uh, uh, a well-known uh, composer, um, and that uh, we we did a bunch of different things that we that we hadn't previously done, and this album also went top ten. So we said, okay, you know, there's there's obviously an appetite for our music, uh, at least on radio, and uh, we we became more of a recording group at that point. I mean, we still you know played out a little bit, but for the most part, uh, we uh, we did our thing. Took us about a year. We got our music together. We wrote our charts. We were very meticulous about the arrangements. Uh, we were thoughtful about putting it all together. We'd have a couple of rehearsals, and we'd go in into the studio. And we record at the Firehouse 12 uh, Studios in um, in uh, Connecticut, in New Haven. And uh, it became a sort of a, almost an annual uh, hang. I mean, we really had a wonderful time uh, as a group. And um, uh, we produced our second album, then our third, then our fourth. Uh, and then when we got to our fifth album, we expanded from five to uh, seven. And uh, sort of uh, that brings us to the present time. Okay. How do you know Neil? Tell tell me now. You have to tell me the Neil story. No, Neil. I have my own albums. Neil reached out to me before, but Neil is a great radio promoter. Anyone who is looking for someone, I could also suggest several other people. And Neil, he's more on the smooth jazz side. That's what I feel. But he has some. He worked with a lot of big names currently in the scene. I don't want to blow up the man's spot because we had several conversations before. If you get what I'm saying, <laughs> but yes, Neil's a good person. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So I missed a piece of what you said because the, uh, uh, the oh. uh, internet connection was unstable, but I got the gist of it. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. That's the problem when you do it remote every now and then things freeze and stuff, but yeah. Okay. So that's a good point on that. So what did you major in in college or what did you go to school for? Uh, I studied pre-law English, believe it or not, and I uh, had a, uh, a very, very strong interest in writing and uh, communication, um, and I uh, 
pursued all of that while sort of real life experience with with music. So I continued my private studies with music and playing and practicing. But in school, I, I did not study music in school. Do you think that benefited you or hurt you as an artist? Well, that's a it's a it's a very, very uh, uh, good question, because I came to a decision when I was young that I did not feel that I had the uh, the backbone to be a, uh, a full time musician to try to make a living as a musician. I, I had many friends in the industry. Um, I had uh, a buddy that uh, uh, at 17 landed a, a job as the pit drummer on Broadway. Um, you know, I mean, I was hanging with some 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 cats that could really play. And I looked at their lives and I thought to myself, that does not look easy. That does not look easy. Explain that part. Explain that part? Yeah, what is not easy? Being a pit drummer or money? Just, oh okay. money, the money, the the pressure, uh the 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 lack of opportunities, uh, you know, really what you have to how hard you have to work. It it really looked like it uh, it was it was a tough go. Um and I, I didn't feel that I had the, uh, the, the makeup, the capacity uh, for that at that point in my life. Um, I felt that I needed to do something that was going to be a little bit more uh, secure, a little bit more um, dependable in terms of my, uh, my ability to make a buck. Um, and so that was sort of the decision that I made. And I felt like, okay, I'm going to enjoy music. It's not going anywhere. I'm a musician. But I don't know that I'm going to do it as my as my way of making a living. Uh, and so that was sort of the decision that I made at that time. Okay. I think in the future, you're going to see a lot more hobbyist type people in the field. And nothing's wrong with that, because obviously I'm talking to one right now who made it to the top of the jazz week charts. So that's good for you, sir. I have my little well, problems with the jazz beat charts, but it's still an accomplishment. Don't ever sell it so short. <laughs> Listen, I, I I understand. You know, look, let's be let's be honest. You know, the the radio charts are are nice. Uh, it's bragging rights uh, to some degree. Uh, it's a reflection of what the uh, uh, general managers and music directors of uh, 40, 50, 60 uh, jazz radio stations, both terrestrial and internet, uh, opine uh, on on uh, on jazz. Uh, we're very, very appreciative, deeply appreciative that our band is is um, enjoyed and we get spins and uh, you know uh, and we get the the accolades and the attention of of, of the radio world, and we really enjoy it. Um, and it's one part of, of a career. Uh, you know, there's a lot more uh, to a fully developed musical career. Uh, performing is huge, obviously. Uh, teaching, um, uh, festivals, um, uh, commercial work. Uh, there are so many different elements. Uh, publicity, obviously, promotion, uh, variety of education. 
this kind of thing that we're doing now, you know, we talk about the art form and expanding the, the reach of the art form and talking about the, 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 the inside of the, of the uh, industry to some degree. Uh, you know, there's so many different elements of, of becoming a fully formed musician and, and having a career. Well, two questions I wish to ask also. Number one, how old were your kids when you said, I just want to leave them something for their father of them playing jazz? Were they young or were they older? They were young. Oh, they were young? Okay. Yeah, they were young. Yeah, my my daughter was, I think, at the time, seven. Okay. My son was like two. Okay. Because if they were older, I was more thinking like, I'm just going to show these kids that I'm not full of shit. Like I used to play drums. But if they're young, yeah, that is a very sweet thing you did there. At least yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what is something that you think people misunderstand about the music world, especially someone like you, who just said, I'm just going to do an album? And then it got to the top of the charts? Wow. Well, you know, the... Um there's a lot to really misunderstand about uh, the music industry. And there's a lot to misunderstand about the jazz industry as, as you well know, Lee. Let's focus um, on the jazz part. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk. We'll, we're here to, we'll talk as, as jazz guys. We'll, we're going to talk about jazz. So one of the things that uh, I, I encounter all the time, all the time is, uh, you know, people say, Wow, you, your group has released, you know, eight albums and, you know, you've got, you know, top 10 albums, you have number one album on radio and so forth. And you guys must be killing it. And and I say to them, there's no money in this industry. <laughs> well, they, they're shocked. It's like, what, what do you mean? And I and I and I, I tell the joke, the old joke. I said, you know, how do you make a million dollars a year as a jazz musician? You start with two. And they look at me and I said, this is this is a philanthropy, man. You know, I mean, for most of us, uh, uh, let, let's let's leave. Let's leave the uh, um, uh, the handful of, of, you know, really, really big uh, jazz uh, performers out of this. You know, uh, we, we can probably name them on, on, you know, on 10 fingers, you know, who, who they are and and. You know, we don't have to we don't have to to talk about them. They 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 speak for themselves. But the reality is that for the for the most part, jazz musicians don't really make uh, money. Uh, and even, quote, successful groups really have to work very hard to break even. And and by the time you figure, for example, the cost of preparing. Uh, recording, engineering post-production, uh, distributing, marketing, promoting uh, a, a record. Uh, and you then think about booking and booking agents and other forms of marketing and promotion. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a small business that needs to generate some amount of, of income to be able to break even if you're if you're lucky and if you're not you have to finance it and very very few musicians are able to do that unless they have a, a, a job job in the world that 
or they come from a family that that can provide them with a nest egg that allows them to to be musicians uh, in today's world, or they have jobs as instructors, they're teaching, um, or they're performing in in uh, you know legit uh, uh, bands. They're playing on Broadway in New York, or they're 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 teaching at uh, Juilliard, or they're you know these are this is the way you do it, and then they have to work you know, evenings, nights, weekends on other aspects of their career. It's, it ain't easy, man. And, and for the most part, you know, most, most, not all, but most jazz musicians, this is what it is. And they're, they're, they're trying to pick up gigs where they can pick them up. Uh, and if they're lucky, they're making 300 a night. If, if it's a big, if it's a big number, it's four or 500 a night. And if it's not at 75 bucks, we all know what that feels like. So that's the that's the real piece of the industry, you know. But if you have uh, uh, if you look at, again, the 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 handful of, of very successful bands and performers, you know, they're, they're doing OK. But but, you know, it's not to be compared with the kind of crazy money you see in pop or hip hop. Uh, no, or, you know, I mean, whole, it's, it's that's why I said let's stick it to jazz because even pop and hip hop have a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know people think that, oh, if I just cross over to pop, I'll be killing it. No, <laughs> not even close. No, because, hey, you got that much more competition and then you're still competing for the same radio play as Beyonce or Taylor Swift or you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. But, you know, it's interestingly, uh, I, I won't I won't name names because I don't want to call anybody out on this. But, uh, you know, we, we play with musicians that have performed with, you know, big, big name uh, pop stars. Understood. Uh, you know, the, 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 the guys that the, the guys and gals that we played with, you know, they get called for, you know, really, really uh, big opportunities outside of jazz. And they'll take them because. You know, you can make 25 grand in a month on tour somewhere. And they come back after a month on the road of playing to audiences in big, big places with 15, 20, 25,000 people, all electronic, half pre-recorded, you know, lip syncing, all this kind of stuff. And they cannot wait for that first $75 uh, gig at, at the local at the local jazz room. They come back after making, you know, big money, you know, five figures on the road for a month with all this, you know, playing to big audiences. And they can't wait to play for little or no money in an intimate jazz room because it's, quote, real music. Okay, I can only speak on my experience because I get who you're probably talking about. I could now be named like 15 people off the top of my head. When you're on tour and you're making that type of money, you don't want to the hand that feeds you number one number two you don't have expressional freedom you cannot take an extra verse or an extra chorus solo it's fun you have eight seconds to shine shine during those eight seconds and move back behind me a lot of artists don't like that and then a lot of people it's like well i want to express my craft and everything but does the audience want to see your craft? They're there to see no. the star. 
Not exactly. you. And a lot of people, yeah. it's like an eagle hit. Yeah. And they get a chance to see things about the, quote, the star that they usually can't believe because it's a whole lot more dysfunctional than anybody really even knows. Right. So that's a whole other piece of it. Uh, there's a lot of tood that you get to, to, to enjoy. It gets to be very complicated. And so they're happy to make the bread, but it's also nice to to get home and, and get back to other musical things that are less complicated. Well, that's a whole other thing that I tell people. It's like, what do you honestly expect or want from the gig or from the life? Because if you're trying to be the star, how many instrumentalists are legit stars? Because... Love Christian McBride, but Christian McBride could walk down Fifth Avenue and I'm pretty sure 99% of people don't recognize him. And then we could even go to somebody that, who I personally like that, you know, the jazz community doesn't, Kenny G. He has respect in the mainstream. People do probably recognize him, but when he goes into even Birdland, I'm pretty sure half the people are just like, it's Kenny G. So he doesn't have respect from his own community <laughs> well you know you, you you're raising some very interesting uh points here and that is that uh you know it when you when you look at the spectrum of what we might call jazz it's pretty broad that's a pretty broad palette uh you know if you listen to <clears throat> the 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 music that is right now at the top of the of the radio charts, um, it, it's got a very particular uh, uh, sound to it uh, from a contemporary uh, a jazz perspective. Um, our group tends to play more in the uh, straight ahead uh, uh, and Latin uh, and hard bop uh, zone which is not as readily uh, uh, focused on uh, right now. It is to some degree, but, but not a as much. And, um, you know, then you have, uh, a a as you said, Kenny G and smooth jazz and what a lot of people who really don't know a lot about the jazz idiom call jazz. And I find that there's a lot of room for growth <clears throat> Uh, among listeners who say they like jazz. Now, what's interesting is I, I'm curious what your experience is. Mm -hmm. I, I, I get this all the time. Uh, uh, people say, well, what kind of musician are you? And I say, uh, a jazz. They say, oh, I, I love jazz. And I say, really? What kind of jazz do you listen to? Who do you like to listen to? And that's usually the end of the conversation. <clears throat> usually... They don't really have a name. They can't really be specific. And they just say, well, you know, well, jazz. How, how old are these people? Oh, that's an, uh, they could thing. be, they, they could be younger and they could be older. Okay, it's really, I had a younger person. I think she was eight at the time. Tell me that Alicia Keys was jazz. And then I asked her, what makes it jazz? My mom says it's jazz. She plays the acoustic piano. So 
I can't blame that on the daughter. I blame that more on the mother. She sees a traditional piano and she's not playing Beethoven or Bach. So she labels that as jazz. So that's one of those cases of it. And was that more of an opportunity to bring her and introduce her to stuff? Yes. But then we have the other side where we have the jazz snobs. And the jazz snobs uh, at certain other things from radio stations, the formances, the magazines that say jazz has to sound like X, Y, Z. See, that's that's the that's you put your finger on it right there, Lee. That's the uh, challenge that our group at the Verb Jazz Ensemble is trying to gently kind of like, you know, budge against to some degree. There's a certain uh, sound that is what we'll call more or less contemporary jazz. You know, there's a certain agreement uh, with regard to what contemporary jazz uh, includes. It's a it's a broad definition. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not putting it into a a pigeonhole here. Uh, you know, it has some it has some variability. <clears throat> But we think it could be even wider than that. And we also think it could very much be, you know, re reflective of some of the sounds of, of uh, 30, 40 years ago, too, that could be hipped up and brought into a contemporary uh, vibe. And so we, we sort of bridge a little bit between hard bop and, and, and Latin and contemporary in, in our sound. But it's pretty clear that our roots are in hard bop and, and, and Latin. It's, it's obvious that that's what we we dig that sound. That's not to say we can't play more contemporary things. We do, but we like that. We like that era. <clears throat> I had and that. Oh, I'm sorry. After you. Oh, okay. That's that's the the point being that we would like to help expand what we're defining as jazz to non-jazz listeners to be a very broad palette. I wouldn't say Alicia Keys. <laughs> okay, we won't even go to Alicia Keys. We won't go to Noah Jones. <laughs> but let's go back to even, what is it? It's 23 right now, 2023. We go back to 1997, 98. There was a, it called? There was a group that played a lot of jazz music that was playing a lot of punk sky music that had a jazz song that was on the top 40s. Billboard Top 40. And the jazz community exited them. Like said, that's not jazz. They're cherry popping daddies. They had a song, Suit, Suit, Riot. The main singer came on the show. And what I'm saying is like, you have someone like him that is literally got into that spear, got onto the mainstream pop music, and our community doesn't embrace them. We have someone like yeah, Robert a Glasper, who I want to thank Chris Brown again. Love you personally and all that stuff, but keep promoting the man who wins Grammys. And when I say he's one of the hardest swingers you're going to get, the jazz community didn't claim it until he won that Grammy for Black Radio. These are some of the challenges that uh, I find frustrating. I think that the uh, opportunity to expand what we're defining as acceptable, really, you know, a, a contemporary should be much broader. It should really, really be much broader. Look at look at guys like 
I'll throw some names at you. Yeah. Um, George Benson. Oh, George Benson. But what, he's a talent, of course. <laughs> what 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 Benson what Benson brought to the music back in the nineteen sixties and seventies. You know, he was playing straight ahead stuff uh, in the sixties. Uh, check out some of his when he was really young. Check out some of his stuff, and then he started getting into more uh, at the time, you know, uh, contemporary stuff in the seventies. And he completely changed the, the face of, of the music with reason. Uh, uh, guitarists like Earl Clue and what he did or the Brecker Brothers and, and what those guys did. Or how about Weather Report? Uh, how about uh, here, here's I wouldn't call this group jazz, but they were really, really influenced and they were amazing, amazing musicians. Chicago. Yeah. Check out uh, be the music of the sh of Chicago was off the chain. It I was so amazing. So what happened there, in your opinion? Why we stopped embracing groups like that? Because they were clearly on the Billboard charts. Like I said, Jazz Week, I like, I respect. There's a place for it, but yeah, okay. Yeah, totally, totally. <clears throat> so what happens over the course of the '70s and '80s and electronica? and digital and multi-track and the the whole you know the 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 the, str the straight ahead sound really sort of evaporates to a very large degree uh it 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 evolves into a a uh, a non um acoustic instrumental environment we start getting into far more complex uh, rhythmic and tonal structures in, in jazz. And a lot of the, um, a lot of the focus uh, in, in academia, in, in jazz academia in school, uh, in my opinion, uh, was uh, influenced by a very uh, capable musicians that were teaching and in the interest of, of finding somewhere to go that was intellectually challenging, music started getting more complicated. It, it was just something that was a natural progression. And the musicians had to really step it up to be able to play this, uh, you know, um, uh, complex, rhythmically complicated, tonally complex um, compositions. But did the mass listening audience follow it? Did they dig it? Could they understand it? And let's be let's be honest. It, it's demanding to be able to understand and follow all of that stuff. It's it's a bit of a ride. And what was jazz originally, Lee? It was dance music. Go back to the 1920s and 30s. People went out to listen to jazz bands to dance. That's what it was. It was the pop music of, of 100 years ago. 90 years ago, the big band era was largely about dance music, right? That's what it was. Correct. So if you take – and so what is hip-hop and, and what is all of the, the contemporary stuff that's so, that's so um, uh, quote, you know, in, in listenable? It's danceable music. It's music with a groove. <clears throat> you know, that's electronic, digital, groove-based stuff that people can really enjoy. Where's, where is um, instrumental jazz in the midst of all this? 
nowhere to be found. Instrumental jazz. You mean like what we consider straight ahead instrumental? I mean straight ahead, but I also mean actually playing acoustic instruments and not just electric stuff, not just digital stuff that you can record in a studio and multi-track and nobody ever ever has to see each other in a recording studio. Okay, that's a different way. I wasn't planning to go even there at all, but we'll just go back to just the airplay part, and then we could go over there. Just remind me, I could, I'm not trying to dodge your question, okay? <laughs> it's uh, and listen. It's this is this is your podcast. I don't mean to hijack the interview. No, you're not hijacking me. I just don't want to be like, oh, he dodged my question. I don't want to be that person. You're gonna throw that at me. I'm gonna because if I'm asking you questions and I expect you to answer them, you get what I'm saying? <laughs> Okay. okay. Have I answered your question? I, I hope no. I you answered all of them. I'm not saying you're. I think I only had one guest that dodged questions, and it was just like, yeah. Oh. I could send you that one later. That one was just like, God, <laughs> why did you come on the show? <laughs> okay, but hey. All right, go ahead. Lay it on me. Radio stations are there to make a profit. A lot of these jazz stations that are on the Jazz Week charts, once again, not trying to beat them up. <laughs> They're not in major cities. So if there is one in L.A., you could point it out to me. Is there one in New York City? Technically, no. There's one in New Jersey <laughs> that gets played in New York City. <laughs> is, KCR, is KCR playing much jazz these days in Columbia? KCR, yeah, but KCR, they have their weekends where it's pretty much just jazz, but it's like a playlist because they play the whole album then it goes to another album then it, yes yeah now, i don't know if that's so that, a that, I mean, reason kcr and bgo i mean in new yeah. york that's 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 it right <clears throat> and then when you have those major stations how much of that is going to modern jazz and when i say modern i mean i'm just gonna i'm gonna open it up more than i want artists that released the album within the past 20 years. I love Miles Davis. He died before I was born. I can say that about Coltrane. I can say that about Parker. I can say that about a good amount of them. So if, you, if you're a teacher, and I'm not saying this happened to me as a student, and you're throwing Miles Davis down my throat, and I can't see Miles Davis perform... It starts to become a turnoff. And then I could go into other modern music, but... So, when I'm also play, saying that the albums that come out... We'll go to a pop station. They don't really play stuff that's a year old. They have a rotation. Every now and then, if the artist is that known or they're that big, like a Bruno Mars, they will play another old Bruno Mars song. So we don't have artists putting out songs like that. You, you know what? You, 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 first of all, I'm 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 picking up what you're putting down, and you could challenge what I'm saying. Oh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't challenge it at all. I think that that's part of the challenge that we're facing with expanding the the listenability of the music that. People that uh, you know can't relate to uh, any of these great uh, masters of the art form who are no longer alive, and their music is 40, 50, 60 years old, 
30 years old even, people cannot hook into it. <clears throat> so one of the things that we like to do at the VJE is play uh, songs that pull from these artists and then when I have an opportunity to compare and contrast the, the what we are arrangement of a particular song that was a classic with the original, people find it fascinating. So as an example, um, as a drummer, there was a, a, a tune called Disc Jockey Jump that Gene Krupa recorded and was written by, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jerry Mulligan baritone saxophonist, uh, composer, Jerry Mulligan. Amazing. And, and Jerry wrote the song and Gene's big band played this. And I think they recorded it something like, uh, 48, 1948. And it was a really great, you know, swinger, but it was a big band thing. And it stopped time drum solos, you know, was what it was really, you know, anyway, I, I love the tune. And I said, let's do a version of disc jockey jump on one of our albums. And I don't remember which album we, we played it on, but we, we and so we did an arrangement of Disc Jockey Jump, but not as a big band. Lee. We did it as a as a as a seven piece uh, reduction, you know, for the VJE. And we didn't have any kind of extended crazy, you know, Gene Krupa solo. We didn't have time for that because that that's a little bit that's too, in my opinion, it's too self-indulgent. But we played a version of that particular <laughs> of that particular tune and we arranged it to our band and we tightened it up and we made it accessible for listeners today and people love the song okay and they said where does this come from and we said have you ever heard of gene krupa no have you ever heard of jerry mulligan no so what where does this come and it opens up a dimension that leads people to inside the art but that's how we think you have to get them there i agree with that but what do you mean by you made it more modern because a lot of these jazz songs from the forties are not relatable today. I can't relate to someone from 1940 on so many different levels. I can't really relate to how you grew up versus me on so many different levels. (laughs) So the answer to your question is, uh, it didn't have the same ring, ding, a ding, ring, a ding. Uh, the arrangement, uh, was, uh, tightened up in terms of the keys and the, the background and the harmonization, and it was much more contemporary sounding. It didn't sound like, you know, that swingy, swingy thing that you would hear from 1945. It didn't have that vibe to it. It had a much hipper it had a much hipper kind of a an edge to it that was far more contemporary sounding, you know, in terms of a if you listen to Straight Ahead today, it doesn't have that ring ding a ding ring a ding sound to it. It's not played that way. Uh, it's played more like a straight four with a little bit of some skipping, you know, to it, and you got a little bit of the Elvin kind of a thing, and it's just got a different. You know what I'm talking about? It's got a different a different feel, <clears throat> but the structure of the song paid homage to the original Jerry Mulligan arrangement to some degree, to some degree. And the soloing was also not 
that kind of a sweet, swingy soloing that you would hear from 1945 or 1950. It the soloing was contemporary sounding soloing, even though the structure of the arrangement was somewhat uh, uh, harkened back, but also it didn't. So what's a cool about this? And again, this is you know it's my band, so I get to do it sort of it the way I want to, right? Um, uh, for good or bad, is what was fun is, and I had an opportunity to do this on on some some programs. We play the uh, the arrangement that that we played, and then we play the original, and it's fascinating to listen to the difference because you can really hear how one grows on top of the other. And when listeners hear that, they find it fascinating. Some do. I cannot say yeah, all, but people who are interested in this art form, that's something that they enjoy. There's an amazing artist, one of the all-time greats that did that in the 70s. And it was a huge hit. Guess who the artist is? Oh, boy. This is this Stump. This is Stump, Stump Feldstein. Let me think. Do I, do I get a hint? You're not even going to give me a hint. You want a hint? He's blind. Oh, uh, songs in the key of life. So, 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 tell me, where are we going with this? No, I'm just saying Stevie Wonder did that for his, with his song Sir Duke. Sir Duke. So yes, I do agree that is a fascinating thing, but people aren't really doing stuff like that that I'm aware of anymore. I try to listen to everybody. <laughs> I try to do, but you see, I'm not Mr. Perfect myself. That's all I could say. Well, let me be clear that, you know, I'm giving you one example of one particular song. You know, we don't, we don't, we're not, we're not just a, you know, we're not there to do this kind of shtick. Yeah, I agree. You know, song after song. But if you throw one of these in on an album, it's interesting. Right. So, for example, we have on our current album uh, a song that was written by Toshiko Akiyoshi and Lou Tabakin uh, in the late 70s called Studio J. Yes. And you can hear Studio J go online, uh, YouTube, and, and you can find it. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great tune. And I love the tune. So I said, let's do a, a kind of a big band reduction of that. And we play a rendition of Studio J on All In. Uh, and it is uh, uh, a representation of that big band chart, but played as a seven-piece Verve Jazz Ensemble interpretation of what that original big band composition sounded like. And we like that. I mean, for us, this is fun. We enjoy this kind of thing. Well, you got to enjoy what you're putting out. So <laughs> that's great. So are you already in works for your, with? I mean, are you already in works with your ninth studio album or do you have it planned in your head already the answer is that we are already planning it and i will uh, uh also say our 10th oh that's what i'd like to hear <laughs> <laughs> and and i don't want to put my foot in my mouth uh, on this so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna hold back but for our 10th album not our ninth ninth will be the next one but for the 10th we have something really special planned. You got to say at least something more than that. No? Well, we're thinking about, we're thinking about doing something that's going to be uh, a, a pretty aggressive step. Oh, come on, man. Come on. Give me more to that. 
Oh, you suck. I can't say t- I don't. I can't. I can't say too much more than that, man. I'm sorry. It's. It's. You know what? I'll, I'll keep you posted. But we're thinking. We're thinking about doing something that's going to be. You can really, tell me be, off the air. Fine. Af, off the air, I'll tell you what it is. I. I, I promise. Okay, I promise. Josh. But but yeah. it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Tell the people where to find your album, how to find your music, all that stuff. Please do that. We are at uh, verve-jazz.com. And you can find us everywhere, man. Spotify and, you know, all the all the streaming service. The, uh, the band is all over the place. And for this particular album, All In, it's going to be released uh, uh, officially, although it's on radio, it's going to be officially released commercially, I think, in May, May 26th, I think. And there's going to be a single released. Um, uh, I think it, it, it already we have three singles coming out. We're going to have uh, uh, the first one is a theme to the odd couple, the odd couple theme. It's going to come out as a single. We're going to, I think, release Studio J as a, uh, a single. And then uh, Once I Loved, the uh, beautiful um, uh, Latin uh, tune, the uh, that will be uh, also a single. So we're going to have those three singles and then the full album will come out, I think, uh, May 26th on Spotify. Okay. Well, Josh, much fun. Very fun interview, at least to me. <laughs> I had a great time. You know, I mean, it's a, it, we got to get off. I know, but we could talk for like two more hours, you know? I know. Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>